Hello and welcome to this week's Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Manis with the St. Louis Beacon. Jason Rosenbaum with the St. Louis Beacon. And a longtime listener, but a first-time guest. That's right, John Lamping, State Senator. So, Senator, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I was born and raised here in St. Louis and uh, went to school out east. And um, Where, where out east? I went to Princeton, and I have okay. a, a master's degree from NYU, and then stayed in the East Coast for about 10 years working in the financial service area. Uh, met my wife there. I'm married 25 years. In the early 90s, we had three children, and by the mid to late 90s, decided to bring them back to St. Louis to raise them here. Um, the early 2000s, we adopted three more kids, so I've got six children. Uh, when I came back to St. Louis, I got more. I got I immediately got involved in lots of community things, and uh, as time went on, I got involved in more and more of those things. And you know, kind of how I ended up in political offices, kind of at the, at the in the 2008 election cycle, that all, all went on. And um, you know, I went to school with uh, Michelle Obama. She's a classmate of mine, and my um, my in a law re- school. No, undergraduate. She's a Princeton. Undergraduate. Yeah, right. so she and I were Princeton together. Um, and then my, my roommate was from Chicago, and that was a network, of, you know, African-American guy from Chicago. And, and then two of my— um, Do you have any good stories about No, no, Michelle she's pretty boring. Oh. You know? <laughs> uh, um, and then two of my roommates went to um, law school with Barack Obama. So uh, with that election cycle, that was, that was my generation. It was very—you know, it was personal. Um, one of my roommates, you know, really worked hard to support President Obama. And I was doing all this community service, and I, most of it was, you know, at-risk risk youth and in the city here— and we weren't making a lot of headway, and so I thought, well, maybe maybe I'll volunteer for public policy service. And so I knew enough people in the Republican Party to kind of convene a meeting um, in the early part of 2009, and I just said, look, I'll volunteer to run for an office. And they had me contemplate a couple of different offices, and ultimately we came to the determination that I would run for this office. And that's how, that's how I ended up in politics, and I was elected, and I just finished my third year of service. So what's your – I mean, when you look at – okay, you said you're in your third year of service – what do you think of politics, just in general? I mean, now that you're in the middle of it. Oh, I think um, I think there's a lot of uh, reforms that are necessary for it to be a more productive uh, process, a more productive thing. I think that um, you know, the average person, I'm the average person prior to getting into politics, they just have their head down and they're focusing on their lives, their career, their family, their community, and... Um, and they're, they're trusting government to go do its thing. And, and they trust them to be effective and to be there for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, someone with a business background would come into the General Assembly and say, well, oh, my God, there's so many simple reforms we could make to make this a more productive um, process. Uh, there's a complete lack of understanding of what goes on in Jefferson City and amongst the community of people. I think uh, that's definitely true. You know, and, and it's something you know, I'm not – it's – it's media is what media is. There's only a certain amount of um, space dedicated to state politics. The, um, the, so there's a real challenge uh, uh, to try to get an understanding out to the community. The individual legislators don't really have much of a platform or a podium. In my time in office, we've had three years with Governor Nixon, who for the most part has, has not tried to push policy ideas from his podium. He has got mm-hmm. a very big podium. So, uh, so there's a lot of reforms that could happen. I'm not necessarily optimistic that they will because you have to kind of reform ourselves. And for the most part, I'd say most of my colleagues are just fine with the way the system is. Now, you're you're kind of a rarity in the Missouri Senate. You didn't come from the House. Mm-hmm. I don't think you ever even worked in, you know, the executive branch or somebody else. How does that change your perspective on legislating just not coming – just this is your first office and 
does it make you more willing to do things that kind of push against the status quo a little bit? Like, how does that kind of affect your legislating mentality? Well, yeah, I, I've uh, I really took the first year to kind of to watch and listen and learn and get an understanding of what can or can't happen. And it's a very when you win election in November, within 60 days, you're in the General Assembly and you, you don't have a lot of time to kind of uh, distill your thoughts. But ever since then, I've had lots of ideas that I think should go forward. And uh, I'm not optimistic uh, in that this reform can actually happen from within. So you've seen examples of legislation I filed to, to reduce the time in session, so to go from an 18-week session to a 12-week session, things like that. Uh, combine offices, lieutenant governor's office, with the uh, with the governor's office. Yeah, go ahead and talk a bit more about that, since this seems to be your big focus right now. Well, I mean, it has been my focus. Um, again, I don't know that it, there's just not a willingness to do it. it uh, Eighteen weeks or twelve weeks is simple. There's there's more than enough time to get done what we need to get done in twelve weeks. Uh, the uh, you look at states the similar size as ours, Virginia, they go eight weeks, and Texas is in the news right now. But Texas, they meet every other year for ninety days. And they have special sessions like they're in right now. Um, but nonetheless, um, there's really no reason why Missouri should be meeting as long as they can. And so a lot that I hear from uh, constituents, and really I think in the press too, is th- there's all kinds of bills that people will say, this is a crazy bill, this is a crazy conservative bill, crazy liberal bill, and why was it filed and why was it heard? Well, partly because we have a lot of time. Um, it, there's more than enough time. People will say, oh, uh, the General Assembly ran out of time. This bill didn't pass because it ran out of time. Well, that's just not true. You, you, you two guys are veterans down there. Bills don't not pass because it ran out of time. Right. And uh, so I think this year was a, I was very pleased by the fact that we worked very hard. So the pace of the Senate was very different. It's my understanding that we, we spent more hours on the floor of any Senate that Republicans have had the majority for a little bit over 10 years. And we spent more time on the, fl- the floor this year than ever before. We considered more ideas than ever before. Uh, and you know, I and I, uh, Senator Richards is to be commended for that. I I kid him and tease him all the time, but let's get back on the floor. Let's get out there. And when I was, I supported Senator Richards in his race for a full leader, and I made specific note of how many times in the first two years we would, you know, come into session at four o'clock on Monday and be out at five o'clock on Monday, and how it was a waste of everybody's time. So things like that. I think that the the process could easily be refined, um, but. It will, re- it will require a very large podium by somebody outside the, the chamber because the cha- the, there's not a desire to reform itself. I mean, is the governor even in a position to do that, just playing devil's advocate, since he's a Democrat and the uh, Republicans control both chambers of the General Assembly? I think a Democratic governor could. I think this Democratic governor can't. He's He's in his fifth year, and he has consistently not tried to lead on just about anything. And, uh, I, not, and not have a legislative agenda. Uh, I, I look at the governor. Uh, one of the things I was surprised the most by is how important that executive branch is to state government. You look at go- states all around the country. In New Jersey, for example, you've got a Republican governor and a Democratic uh, legislature. Or you look at states that have mixed government. States that are going hard in one direction, California maybe is going hard to the kind of the center left. States going hard to the right. Kansas City is going kind of hard to the center right. They're all being led by governors. They're not being led by the General Assembly. And we have a situation where this governor, he just protects interest. He does not lead. Um, you know, I sat down with uh, Governor Daniels a week before he left office to go become the president of Purdue. Oh, you're talking about the, gov- the former it, governor of Indiana. This is, this is just for our listeners. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
and I knew this guy. I'd read some of his books, but you know that that he had a legislative agenda. He was in office eight years. Every year he had a legislative agenda. The General Assembly, the first uh, two years of his time in office, was a mixed government. Uh, House was Democratic, Senate was Republican. He gave his acceptance speech his first year, walked off the podium, walked into the Capitol, and he had found sponsors for 70 bills in both the House and the Senate. And each single year, he had a legislative agenda, and he committed himself to working with the General Assembly to move Indiana in a direction. That, that's not what we have in Missouri. Um, yeah. yeah. So before we get into specific issues, what were some things that you kind of sponsored or spearheaded this year that you, you felt were particularly impactful that ended up passing? And if there was something that didn't pass that you'd like to mention? Or right was well. ignored, which is what he's been talking about. Yeah. Well, sure. Um, each of the three years, I mentioned before, I have three adopted children. And when I got to the Capitol, I wanted to keep my, commit myself to kind of that universe of people, the, those children, adopted children, foster care children. And so each of the years I've been there, um, actually been relatively successful, sponsored legislation that addresses the concerns of that community and actually had that legislation be signed into law. So this year, uh, Senate Bill 47 was uh, a bill that it came actually out of St. Louis County. They adopted a foster care coalition. They have a process where they place uh, hard-to-place foster children, you know, mid-teens kind of children, and um, they there's this thing called a legal guardian that the legal guardianship uh, allows the legal guardian to actually have certain rights with respect to support for a foster child, but it was narrowly defined in the state of Missouri to, it was essentially a blood relative. Right. And so if I were, Joe, if I were your best friend living next door and you passed away and I wanted to be the legal guardian for your children, then I, I couldn't be the legal guardian by definition, even though you and I could be best friends. And so we expanded the definition of legal guardianship. The center, uh, the governor actually signed that earlier this week. And so that's, uh, that's really a compelling uh, piece of legislation that, in that space that I did uh, put forward and then passed. I had another bill that was a third or fourth year in a row that we, as the state of Missouri, we offer accommodations to, um, to guide dogs if you're blind, but we don't offer them for um, when they're used as therapy dogs for autistic children or veterans that are uh, dealing with psychological issues. And finally, that bill actually, too, was signed a few weeks ago. The, um, the thing this year that uh, there's two things really that I would have liked to see uh, come to be and, and um, that didn't pass and or didn't make it through to the final finish line in, in, in even the General Assembly. Um, in December, when we pre-file, I actually pre-filed legislation that ended up being part of um, part of it ended up being in our tax cut bill. That was I guess that was the House bill. I don't remember the number, but I actually had provided for transportation funding inside of the tax cut legislation. Right. Uh, that was the approach I wanted to take. The Senate never took that approach. When the Senate sent its bill to the House, the House actually picked that up, and that's what they sent back to the Senate. Was uh, That was where you're raising sales taxes and doing other things and lowering uh, income taxes and other taxes as well. And in, But in the bill that I pre-filed in December, it actually provided $400 million for MoDOT to do that. What the House sent back had about $300 million uh, for MoDOT to fund mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. needs. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that my single biggest disappointment was the fact that that was not the approach that we took to find a solution for transportation funding, as well as have that be part of what was ended up being our uh, tax cut bill. Now, you came under a lot of fire or pressure for, on the uh, filibuster that, that you helped lead on blocking the transportation tax approach mm-hmm. that you proposed, which was the one, one cent increase in the sales tax that was supposed to just be for 10 years. I know that the um, RCGA and some of the others uh, 
major business groups who were calling people after the first round of the filibuster and who were pretty upset with you. I'd be interested in your uh, philosophy and why you decided to that it was an issue that you needed to really stand up for. And B, what's been the fallout? Well, sure. The, just, again, for your listeners, so Missouri state tax is 4.225%. So the proposal was to raise it one full percent. Missourians pay in about $8 billion of discretionary monies. I mean, that's essentially what we pay in. A lot of the other monies we pay in are um, dollars that are uh, targeted dollars that are matched by federal programs. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have about $8 billion in revenues. We have a 4% sales tax. And we were the proposal was to raise it 1%, so almost 25% increase the state sales tax, as well as this would generate $800 million in new taxes. So it would be increasing our taxes in the state of Missouri by 10%. And the, what I mentioned earlier, I had in legislation that I filed and uh, the House worked through, we were and, and people that were pushing for this $800 million in increased taxes, in meetings I had with them, I said, well, I can get you $200 million. I can, we can get you $300 million. We can get you $400 million. They said, well, we don't want that. We want, all, we want $800 million. We want the largest uh, tax increase in the history of the state. Uh, and so uh, and they were dead set on that. So we, we voted that bill out of the Senate the Thursday before spring break, so early in March. It had 10 no Republican votes and sent it to the House. And I will be honest with you, I thought we would never see it again, mm-hmm. that the House hold itself self out to be this you know, very conservative bastion and the legislation that they send to us, um, you know, we things like tort reform and um, labor, refor- labor union reform, it, those things get kind of bogged down in the Senate. In the House, they pushed those things right out. They passed them. I saw the speaker right. talked about he's going to pass right to work this year in the House. So I was quite certain that – I don't know. Were, how will that get out of the Senate, though? But my point is to but say yeah, is well, when the Senate sent yes. – when, when, when 10 Republicans voted mm-hmm. against this largest tax right. increase in the history of the state, I thought, well, we'll never see this again. There's no way that the House will pass – take this up, pass it, mm-hmm. uh, or take this up, amend it, and pass it and send right. it back to us. So that's exactly what they did. Um, they – and. And I think I think myself as well as the proponents. Uh, what I heard behind the, in, the, in the grapevine is six weeks out, uh, meaning six weeks left to go, that there wasn't even a thought that they would get it out of the house, and they had not lobbied up completely. And then they did just that; they lobbied up and they got it over, and it got there with three days ago. And at that point, uh, again, for the benefit of your listeners, uh, ten Republicans voted no. And I've been there three years, and I've never seen a bill that 10 Republicans vote no on that ultimately goes and passes. Mm -hmm. And each one of those 10 Republicans knows that they can vote no and tell everybody, oh, I'm against that. I voted no. But they also know that they could stop the bill, too. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that was the thing that was what should have been done. I thought the House would have stopped it, never sent it back. But at the end of the day, um, that's what three or four of us did. And it wasn't even a dramatic filibuster. We only spoke for How long was it? It's four or five hours. It was. Yeah. It was, uh, but it was, and it, it wasn't just you. It was also um, Rob Schaff of St. Joseph, mm-hmm. uh, Ed Emery of Lamar, and did Paul Lavoda get involved near the end? Well, it, th- here's what the issue is: it's a Democrat. It was a, a Democrat. Democrat. What, well, there's ten Republicans that voted no. Yeah. So, it's it's when we have seen filibusters in the past, and later on the filibuster occurred on the on the tax credit bill. The tax credit bill, there's only five or six Republicans that are against new tax credits. Mm-hmm. and But this was a situation where 10 Republicans voted against it. And, and I actually – I won't name names on the Democrats. Was it side. because of the size of it? Oh, it was everything. It or was, it was it, everything. It, it, okay. Well, for example, um, in the state of Virginia where you've got a Republican governor and you have a Republican uh, General Assembly, they spent three years – and I had this – I was on a radio show in Columbia with uh, Senator McKenna, not Ryan, but his father – 
who was pushing for this tax. And we talked about the pie. And I said, well, look, here's what I want to do. I want to figure out how to reallocate monies inside the state budget today. And again, in the legislation I proposed, it was to move two or $300 million over to transportation. And, and, and Where we, was it going to come from? Well, in this, it was going to be we're, we're going to raise the sales tax two tenths, three tenths, four tenths, some number that we would settle upon, and we would do it inside of the tax cut bill, such that it would be revenue neutral, so it would be Hancock neutral, okay, and wouldn't have a vote of the people. But actually, we would actually be leading on this issue, not asking the uh, citizens to lead, and um, and that's what they did in Virginia. So Virginia spent three years trying to they they pulled money out of the pie and they sent it to transportation. At the end of the three years, the governor, Republican governor, said, "Look, we've done all we can." I propose a six-tenth sales tax increase for the next five years to finish the job on funding infrastructure. Well, we didn't, we didn't do the first part of that. We've never done the first part of that. There's been no effort in these last three years to reallocate resources in the pie. We went straight for a 10% increase on tax revenues. So uh, I, if we went through a period uh, this year or the last two years or the next year, and, and there's no doubt we can find two or $300 million and send it to MoDA to start the process – on the radio show in Columbia, Senator McKenna said, well, you know, quarter sales tax increase, that won't get you anything. Well, you know, I beg to differ. A quarter sales tax increase is $200 million. You can bond against it almost two to one. It would allow for a billion-dollar project to take place. Uh, I think in this example of this 1% sales tax increase, the outside forces, they thought they had the opportunity, and they probably still do think they have the opportunity to get – that you know, eight billion dollars over ten years, uh, which again, you, the funding ratios are the same. They could bond that cash flow to where they're building a significant number of projects. So um, that's kind of how the whole transportation thing went down. Now, you just mentioned there, you kind of have a different perspective on on tax credits. Um, kind of as an awkward segue to sure. that. Um, tell me kind of about your perspective. I know that there's been generally a a you know intractable conflict between the House and the Senate, especially on historic preservation and low income. Um, which, which are the two largest right. tax credit programs. It's just for and the a, listeners. And a lot of people in St. Louis, for example, um, you know, go crazy whenever you talk about capping the historic preservation. Which is, which is the largest program in the country almost by, if we could cut it in half, it would still, almost, it would be the second or third largest in the country. So what's your perspective on this issue? The, let's talk about the, the negotiations, the, the attempts the last three years okay. to try to come to some resolution. So here's how, here's how I would describe that. There, I think there are a very small group of people in the Senate, not more than five or six, that we look at each year there's as many as $600 million in tax credits that are redeemed and authorized. And there's a very small group in the Senate that think that that's too much money. You know, that, again, our budget's $8 billion, so it's not, you know, it's 8%, 7% of our entire budget – and that we think that number should not be $600 million, It should be maybe $400 million or $300 million. Or in some instances, you know, I, some of us might think it should be zero even, that there's that philosophical we shouldn't be uh, targeting uh, state tax dollars. How good are we at allocating those right. resources? That is a, so there's a very small group that want that $600 million to be less than $600 million. There is an overwhelming majority in the Senate and in the House to maintain all the programs we have and to consistently introduce new programs. So... This gets branded. So, so what's happened is at the beginning of 2011 session when the big new program right. was the Aerotropolis. Correct. Uh, Senator Ferguson had filed nothing but reform, a reform that, uh, bill that came from the commission that looked at, you know, reducing the exposure. And then Senator Schmidt carried Aerotropolis bill. And they were pushed together as a way to try to get the two done. Um, I think that's a mistake. 
I think that we should we should look at reform by itself, and we should look at new programs by themselves. So the, there's not a, a majority of either the House or the Senate that wants to do reform, meaning they want to reduce the liability. The, the bill that the House passed late in the session and that Senator Schmidt brought to the Senate floor that our leadership wanted us to pass was not tax credit reform. It actually spent more money the first seven years than it, than it did cut uh, tax credits. So uh, this has been another one of those issues where there, it's very complex. There's a lot of moving parts. The public back home doesn't have it. It's hard enough in the building to understand what the heck's going on on this <laughs> issue. But um, I think that it's kind of irreconcilable in that enough of us in the Senate want that $600 million to be less, and enough people in the Senate and in the House have no problem with that, and they have no problem with it being more. Why do you think that is? Why does someone want it to be more? I mean, just I'm, I'm just trying to explain it. Well, um, if you're a fan of smaller limited government and you actually go are su- and successful in that approach to governing and you come back home and people say, well, what did you do? And you say, well, I decreased the size of government. It's now smaller. It's less intrusive. It's limited. Some people say, well, that's nice. That's great. But if I go home and say, hey, you know what? I, pat- I-, I sponsored a tax credit bill that's going to create this activity. You're going to go see it, feel it, and touch it. And, 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 and I've got people that really want that to happen, that live in your community, that make a lot of noise and do their own press releases. Well, that, from elected officials' point of view, that, that's a pretty good deal. So um, that sounds good. I did this. People applaud me for it. Um, the press covers the, the, uh, the activity. And so there's an inclination and a tendency to, for elected officials to gravitate towards that approach to legislating, which is to have said that they did something in their time that's tangible. We talked about pressure on the transportation bill, but was there a lot of pressure from St. Louis development interests, banks, you know, rehabbers to keep everything the same for you? Well, to keep everything the same, that was exclusively the historic tax credit people, okay. you know, and, and uh, I just would suggest that that's, that's a program that's completely out of control. For To think that we could cut it in half and it would still be in the top two or three. When I tell people that we spend more money on historic tax credits than the 13 original states spend on tax credits, that we spend more money on historic <laughs> tax credits than the state of California spends on tax credits. And I actually think that, you know, their demand for the, you know, the size of their program really works against lots of other things. Paul McKee worked, you know, he's, he was looking for $7.5 million to help with the land assemblage process right. of redeveloping the north side. And there never once was a moment where the historic tax credit people who think would benefit mightily by the redevelopment of North St. Louis City, there was never once where they said, well, look, we'll lower our cap $7.5 million to get money to go to the north side. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very tight-knit community of people that uh, benefit by that historic tax credit program. And they are loath to have that number come down at all. The same thing for the uh, low-income housing tax credit program. Now, you mentioned before the show that I guess the, the, your biggest priority for the next year or so is going to be ethics reform. And in some ways, what he did with tax credits kind of fits in with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to just, you know, just generally, what would you like to see? I know you sponsored a bill that would have... It, credit- it was brought up briefly, but then... Nothing. Yeah. Nothing happened with I, it. It was toward the end of the session. Am, am I correct? That's correct. That? Yeah. Okay. The, so explain the bill first, and well, kind of explain your the ideas. Bill, the bill, the only ethics bill that got through committee and got onto the floor this year was to yeah. dramatically change the um, the ability of a legislator to become a paid lobbyist. 
So uh, at one point, the bill was to ban it for life. Uh, later on, to get it out of committee was to limit it to 10 years. And it got to the floor where you'd be limited to 10 years, with me understanding that that's probably uh, would have to be amended to a smaller number. It, the reason it spent so very little time on the floor was that, uh, and I sympathize to some degree, the Democrats had filed all kinds of le ethics legislation, none of which got heard in committee. Right. And here it was with maybe eight weeks to go. It was not super late, but here was their first opportunity to stand up and be heard on the bills that they had filed. And I went over to the minority leader. They, they started talking. And I said, look, I, if, we, if you want to get what I propose done, then you need to withdraw these amendments because we're not going to take any of this. This is not going to be the comprehensive ethics bill. And, and some of the amendments that they were throwing out were oh, – it, 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 it was it, it was banned on like lobbyist gifts and, and things like that. It was lobbyist gifts. It was campaign contribution. It was right. the, when, you, when you use the word ethics reform, it is a very wide, broad spectrum Correct. of ideas. And I know that you're, you're, you have not taken any lobbyist gifts. You're in that small club basically, of people that refuse to take them. I, I, I would say that I'm in the tiniest of clubs in, in that um, it's the policy that I've uh, I had from day one. And uh, when um, a lobbyist will put in for an expense, which can't happen if you go to some group meeting or, I mean, I had one lobbyist, uh, I met him at Starbucks, and he put in an expense for $2.50. Um, I actually write a personal check back to the lobbyist. So there's been some – some of the legislators have adopted this process of, of reimbursing the lobbyists with their with campaign, campaign tr money, contribution. which yeah. there's some issue. That's an ethics issue, actually. Yes. Um, and, uh, but no, I'm, and there's a very small group of us, I think, uh, Senator Sifton, actually, is, that's his approach, too. Yes. Um, so, so for 2000 and you know, – after watching 2011 and then thinking we should do ethics reform in 2012 – they, we've got a lot of kind of veterans in our caucus, and they have been through these ethics reform right. wars, and they have no energy for it and no desire to do it. The, uh, as my first three years, I went from maybe six or seven bills to this year, I think I was, had filed as many as 40 bills. And now my focus for next year, I, well, you will not see me file more than two or three pieces of legislation. And in the, in the off season, in particular the last, last two years, I've spent a lot of time with my colleagues uh, we started caucusing. The caucus you see today started caucusing after 2011. And, right. Yeah, and we really, because we were just uh, somewhat disgruntled, uh, and we thought we needed to begin this process of becoming a team. Um, my entire focus in this offseason is on ethics legislation. And it will be, I'm looking at the entire spectrum. Uh, you can expect me to file both a legislative fix as well as a ballot initiative fix. In these conversations, I'm more than likely to end up talking to outside groups that are also contemplating the ballot, and uh, and I think that that would be the best use of this. Now, what, what about campaign contribution limits? Because that typically gets thrown in with this ethics reform umbrella. What's mm -hmm. kind of your take on that issue? Well, um, philosophically, I think it's free speech, so I'm against cam campaign okay. contribution okay. limits. Okay, okay, so that's the philosophy. But the reality is, is that there are lots of different feelings about lots of different things. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm going to enter into this entire negotiation with understanding that I might have to negotiate. I'll tell you where, where, my, where I'm centered, though. Right. That's what I wanted on, to know. On, what, what's on, your I, key? Where I'm centered on ethics reform is it's on the legislators themselves. So um, I think we need to hold ourselves to the highest possible standard. We, we are entrusted um, by the people. And we and so there are things there are things like for example restricting the lobbyist um, legislation from becoming a lobbyist that's very important to me things like that things that 
help the legislators hold themselves legislators hold themselves to the highest standard. Now, does it hurt? Uh, just so our listeners know that many of those lobbyists are former legislators. I mean, when I go up to the Capitol, a lot of the people who I've known from previous years are out in the hall, so I can run out there and ask them this, that, and the other. Does it make it more difficult because many of these lo- lobbyists are former legislators, and because of term limits, you've got some of your colleagues who may be looking at joining them and maybe making as much or more money as they make now. Multiples Did, of what they make now. Okay. I mean, does, yeah. does is that one of the of the problems in trying to get it through? It'll be it, – It's earlier we, sparked, we, we spoke about reforming itself. Right. That will be the challenge. And that's why I will be legislating. I will be ba- trying to do a ballot initiative, and then I will likely coordinate my efforts with – or at least understand what other ballot initiative people are thinking. So I wanted to touch on this very briefly because we are – I guess yeah, he, showed me, he showed me the right. clock. <laughs> We've gotten very freewheeling as always. Um, you know, in 2010, you won a very close race against former St. Louis County – Councilwoman Barbara Frazier. I think you won by 100 or 200 votes or something like that. A little bit over 100 votes, correct. And um, there's already a Democrat who Mm -hmm. has thrown her hat into the ring. Um, I I read an article on Creve Patch that you're you're thinking of possibly – your decision on whether to run again is a little uncertain right now. I wanted to just get kind of what your sense is about next year and whether you run. It's entirely dependent upon my family. So I'm the father of six children. My uh, second youngest child – not shortly after I was elected to office in 2010, she's an accomplished gymnast. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's Chinese. She's got a physical advantage in a lot of ways. And she had to move – we had to move her to Blue Springs, Missouri to train. And that's a center that uh, they develop national team gymnasts. So there's four girls that train there now on the national team. That began in May of 11. And uh, beginning in the fall of last year, my entire family, none of my family, lives in St. Louis County. Oh, uh, so you're, you're... I, so I live in St. Louis County. I, but my work requires me to be here. I'm kind of here Monday through Friday, right? Um, and I I go back and forth to Kansas City uh, for the weekend. When we're in session, I go back and forth to Jeff City from Monday to Thursday, and then I go back and forth to Kansas City uh, on the weekends. And so the decision we're going to make as a family will it'll happen in, in the fall when we know where our family is likely to live in 2014 to 2015. If I were deciding today, my family would be living in in the Kansas City area for the next few years, and that's it. I I uh, enjoy what I'm doing. I um, I appreciate the people that I that I um, represent, but in my family, it's we we go God, family, and country in that order. And my family is not with me in St. Louis. Legislation County. legislating is probably number twenty on that list. <laughs> well, that, falls like the, that. that falls into the country. Uh, yeah, country. The country. Yeah, part. <laughs> I mean it's important, but not as right. important. Yeah. Right. So I'm working on the first one, uh, and then my family has always been a huge priority. Uh, we came back to St. Louis to raise our family. Uh, I have a really extraordinary family, and they they have made a tremendous sacrifice um, to. And they've come because they've come and gone to St. Louis. We we try to stay together as a family as much as we can, and and none of I mean I would never would have run for state senate ahead if my family was training in Blue Springs, Missouri. Well, so so yeah. did your family support what what you're doing in Jeff City? They support. A, we've made a commitment, so mm-hmm. they understand that you know did, that our family, that Dad made a commitment. He ran for this office, and he has to fulfill his commitment. That's what we teach our children to to finish what you start. Well, it, I, I've said this publicly, but if you decide to run for re-election, I think you'll be a formidable candidate. Just because you know, 2010, you ran in, I guess, a more Democratic district than almost 60 percent Democrat. Um, and I now think it's I, less I think, Democratic. I think it'll be a close race either way. I think it's just a swing district, and you know, if you don't decide, I'm sure there'll be a Republican free for all, and it'll be a fun race to. 
I don't know. I, I I would disagree with it's not a swing district. It is mm-hmm. a Democratic district. Oh, okay. Okay. And <laughs> I guess I was being more charitable. <laughs> no, it, it's a it's a Democratic district that uh, that happens to be held held by a Republican. Um, and you know, when, when we look at districts that like this district now is uh, fifty three or fifty four percent Democrat. Okay. When we look at Republican seats to the same number, those are Republican seats. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you back on next year to to discuss or make an announcement. Not Either next way. year, like in a couple months. <laughs> in a couple months. In a couple months. Well, that'd be great. Well, that should just about do it for, for the show. We have to get out of the studio, I believe. But uh, you can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at J Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at, at J Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And you can follow the senator on Twitter at John Lamping. Well, Senator, thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back next week uh, with no guest uh, since it's the holiday. Since it's the holiday week, we'll, July eleventh. Just be... But we do have one on July eleventh. Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal should yes. be a great show. Compelling uh, podcast. Very compelling. <laughs> so, Senator, thank you for joining us. We'll be back. Until then, so long.